You said you'd never give up on me. Starfleet protocols dictate that we act in the interest of what? Of everyone else. But what about the protocols of a father? Or were you never issued those? Hi, I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave, I'm a comedian and actor, and welcome to Genre Reveal Party. This is our podcast where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss, uh, or a season of TV in this case. There will be spoilers, partially because it's our goal that you don't need to have watched the thing to enjoy the podcast, and I also want to say with regards to spoilers, yes, we're doing a, a season of Star Trek right now. We have, we have different levels of knowledge. Me at the low end, I will be doing a very dumb guys a- explainer of how I saw this season. So if you've never even watched any Star Trek, I still think this will be valuable because I had a blast watching it. And I think we're going to have a blast talking about it. So take it away, Madeline. All right. So this week we've got another great guest and a dear friend of mine, Emmy O'Brien, who's done many things, among which is writing a couple of amazing books. Last year, with her friend and collaborator, um, Iman Abdelhadi, uh, she co-authored Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. Everything for Everyone was published by Common Notions Press, which published my book last year as well. And we actually also shared an editor, Andy Battle. Um, And I was really thrilled to hear about this book and that Emmy was writing a work of speculative fiction. To me, it feels reminiscent in all the right ways of Lizzie Borden's 1983 film Born in Flames as a documentarian, sci-fi, queer, feminist, communist narrative about a future revolution in New York City. And this June, Emmy's next book will be released from Pluto Press, and it is entitled Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. I'm set to receive a reviewer's copy of it very soon. Um, But for now, here's what I have from Pluto Press. Emmy O'Brien uncovers the long history of struggles to go beyond the private family. She traces the changing family politics of racial capitalism in in the industrial cities of Europe and the slavery plantations and settler frontier of North America through the rise and fall of the housewife family. From Marx to black and queer insurrection to today's mass protest movements, O'Brien finds revolutionary movements seeking better ways of living or of loving, caring, and living. Family abolition takes us through the past and the present of family politics into a speculative future of the commune, imagining how care could be organized in a free society. So we are really excited to have Emmy on the podcast and to talk about this project along something I know she cares a lot about as well, which is Star Trek. And for this episode, Emmy suggested we watch Star Trek Picard, which just concluded its third and final season. The series begins at the end of the 24th century, 14 years after Jean-Luc Picard's retirement from Starfleet, when he leaves his family vineyard in France uh, called Chateau Picard to go on one last adventure, or so it would seem. The adventure begins with his discovery of synths, beginning with Daj, who Picard believes to be his late friend Dada's, quote, daughter. By the third season... 
data excuse me that's all that's, that's like a <laughs> yes. that's a major plot point in it, okay, in okay. An important episode <laughs> okay uh, a malicious doctor who mispronounces <gasps> the doctor oh. data's name wow and he okay, corrects okay. her and she's like why do you care <sighs> i have to work on that because i'm also in nevada not a nevada person <laughs> um okay so by the third season picard has learned that he has a son with dr beverly crusher who hid this from Picard in order to protect their son, Jack, from danger, um, at least initially. So the series is filled with these reunions from Star Trek Next Generation, along with questions of parenthood and legacy, and it ends with the return of the most iconic villains of TNG, at least I think, the Borg. All right, dumb guy summary. Cue Dave. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, you did cover some things. And I want to say we're specifically talking about season three. So literally the only full season of Star Trek I've ever seen is Star Trek Picard season three. <laughs> I'm going to try to get this done as quickly as possible. Here we go. So Picard, the whole season starts with Picard hanging pictures in a house with a lady we never see again. And then they go to a <laughs> ship to find his ex and shipmate, an ex-shipmate as well, Beverly Crusher, right? And it turns out she has, uh, <laughs> who turns out to be Picard's son, Jack, with her, okay? They're being pursued, Beverly and Jack, by this crazy claw ship called the Shrike, which is captained by a changeling named Vadic. Okay, and changelings are these like bacon grease liquid guys who just want the universe <laughs> to be quiet again, and they got did dirty by like solids as they refer to them in some war, the Dominion War way back when. Okay, they they can turn into anyone, but and and like Vadic, the captain of the Shrike, has this kind of like omelet pan where she chops off her hand and melts it, and it like turns into the main changeling head who says gives her commands in a deep voice, and that is a very cool thing. The changelings are after <laughs> Jack because he's a weapon, or he'll part of him will make a weapon that will allow the Borg, okay, to take over the galaxy or the universe or whatever. I'm not sure how big space is here. For months, the changelings have been doing something with DNA where they infiltrate these ships on Starfleet, which is the main military or cops or pirates or whatever Picard is. And they've all been infecting all the young Starfleet officers with Borg DNA, okay? So changelings and Borg working together. Changelings are the conduit. The Borg switch on all these, all these young people, assimilate them during Frontier Day, some sort of celebration. I, I don't know. I, I know it's got to be covered before. But all the Starfleet ships on Frontier Day are at this same base and they get in this big formation like Blue Angels. And before <laughs> that, Jack Crusher was having these visions with crazy red vines and a big red door because he is part Borg and the main Borg lady is calling to him because B Picard did Borg stuff like 35 years ago and he got it in his DNA and he passed it on to Jack. So all the old crew, and I mean like literally old, the old guys and gals and androids go to Jupiter where the Borg made a very cool, I like the Borg. The Borg made a very cool big <laughs> black and green cube to transmit their messages to all the new Borg in the Starfleet to have them attack Earth. And they're led by Jack, who is plugged in. So the old crew in their old ship, the Starship Enterprise, heads into the cube. Picard plugs himself into the Borg and gives Jack a hug inside it. So they come back out just in time to find <laughs> out the cube is exploding because Data, the android, has human feelings and he knew he could fly. 
the Enterprise to the core and explode it. So they explode it. They beam back uh, everyone just in time. And then everyone goes and plays poker. And Jack and some of the younger Starfleet people are not Borg anymore. And they are put in a new ship that's renamed the Enterprise. And also there's this junkie spy fighter lady, Rafi, and the old Klingon Worf are like investigating weapons this whole time. And sometimes spend time apart, sometimes with the main crew. Worf was a big war guy, but now he's a big meditation guy. And at one point, he told uh, Rafi, like amidst uh, uh, my favorite moment of the whole series season is when he's like talking to Rafi. He's like telling her the deal, and then he's like, "I'm making chamomile tea," and that's uh, <laughs> that's my understanding of the series. So, wow. with that, let's chat about it. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> So I wanted to start by asking some kind of bigger questions about Star Trek and um, maybe how this connects to, you know, your your discovery of family abolitionist politics, or maybe it doesn't. But I was wondering, Michelle, like, what led you to Star Trek? When did that become a part of your life? So uh, Star Trek became a part of my life when I was a teenager. I was growing up in Oregon. I was very depressed. Uh, I think I got into it probably uh, when I was uh, 11 or 12 and then uh, continued watching it throughout high school. Um, and I hadn't transitioned. I hadn't sort of thought of myself as trans at that point. So I was a very depressed teenage boy and not very good at being a boy. And uh, Star Trek was really, uh, as it is for a lot of people at this time, this was in the in my case, in the early 90s, um, was a really wonderful escape. And I watched The Next Generation. Um, and I, I, this is, this is related to what you said about family abolition or asking about it. I, The Next Generation was, um, I, I very much sort of related to it as like a fantasy alternative to the nuclear family. Um, Freud talks about something called the, family romance, which is the mm -hmm. fantasy that children have, that they really belong somewhere else, that they have other parents, secret parents, that are better or different or more noble or more royal than their actually existing parents. And I had a lot of fantasies, I think, when I was quite miserable and going through puberty, of sort of suddenly finding myself on the Enterprise with hmm. these people. And not that exactly that they're my nuclear family. It's precisely that they sort of function differently than nuclear families do. They were, uh, that in many ways, Star Trek was a story about flying space communes, that people form families within them, but those families don't function as economic units. They don't function as systems of dependency. They don't function as systems of social reproduction. And they're not atomized and isolated, that every member is integrated into the broader social and material life of the crew on the ship. Um, as one, one friend who's also into Star Trek put it, Star Trek was so compelling because in it people had real friends. <laughs> and I think I, I really yearned for that. Like Picard was a little bit of a father figure, but I never imagined myself as sort of related to these people. I imagined myself as living among them as an alternative to sort of growing up in a isolated family and in the material conditions of nuclear households. In the mm -hmm. US. Um, 
Yeah, so I was a big The Next Generation fan, which makes me a perfect uh, audience for Picard season for Picard. Three, <laughs> which is really made for Next Generation fans. Absolutely. Yeah, I really felt that. That's really my point of contact with, um, with Star Trek, too. So it sounds like, you know, whether you were thinking about it, you know, consciously or politically at all, Star Trek was kind of opening up this space for you to kind of start thinking about family abolition on some level or um, exploring that idea uh, in some way. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That it's one of a number of speculative fiction, science fiction stories I was exposed to, where the future is not primarily organized around private households and Mm -hmm. isolated nuclear families. And that that alternative organization in one way or another is vastly better than what we have. Um, Yeah. And that I think was a very compelling and powerful theme for me. I certainly wouldn't have conceptualized it as family abolition, but mm-hmm. that they, that all these people get to live with their friends in space and get to work together and, uh, and care for each other. They're, you know, over the course of this, uh, seven seasons of the next generation, people develop quite rich and deep friendships with each other. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I know that the book and also the essay that it's based on are kind of more straight up political theory, but something I've always really enjoyed about your work is these inflections of of sci-fi that I see Mm -hmm. um, happening in it. So I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you think uh, being a sci-fi fan and a a Trekkie, or I don't know if you identify as a Trekkie, but a Star Trek fan have... um, shaped your thinking about about this current book book project and can i also add this is the point where i just want to say when we first asked madeline was the first one to ask you to be on the show you sent kind of a a genre treatise that i really found very (laughs) um uh amusing and 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 inspiring in a lot of ways where you were like, you know, Madeline's asking, like, what do you want to talk about? And you, and in your email, you say, this is me quoting, you may already know this about me, but usually when it comes to TV, I watch one and only one genre, science fiction. I think to meaningfully talk about genre at all, it would need to be in the orbit of futurescapes or altered realities or portal fantasies, etc. Fantasy I can tolerate so long as it is not set in a feudal universe. No Game of Thrones. I'm just like... <laughs> Just the boundaries of that, the 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 <laughs> sense of self of that, I found very inspiring. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, been my rubric for popular culture for a long time, and it has served me really well. I get to minimize watching, I, I don't know, dreadful bourgeois dramas where people treat each other with great cruelty, and it's all very emotionally serious, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I sort of sum up as realist fiction. Um yeah, so uh, first about the book. So Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, as you said, will be out from Pluto in June. Uh, pre-orders available now if you use the code FAMILY30 um, up until its publication date. You can get 30% off pre-ordering it. And the book is based on a number of prior pieces of writing, including a couple of essays. You referenced the essay, it sounds like, from Endnotes, the historical essay, as well as an essay that has a future horizon in Pinko. Um, and the book has sort of three main sections. 
the first kind of introduces the core, the key concepts, the basic political frameworks, thinking about the family as a unit of social reproduction in chapter one, using uh, the context of COVID and the COVID crisis and a lot of people's experiences around that. Chapter two moves into thinking about the family as a, as a, dimension of violence, both the internal violence of abuse and coercion that uh, within families, but also the broader systems of racial terror, state violence, and violence that of racial capitalism, that families are sort of strategies of survival within. Um, and then moving into thinking about the sort of what my argument around abolition that involves both destroying, but also preserving or unleashing some element in, in this case of care. Um, and then chapter two is, or part two is the longest and it's an historical argument. And then part three moves into thinking about, uh, various political struggles in the present, uh, and how to rethink them or connect them. Uh, via family abolition, and then moves into a long arc thinking about the future. Um, and uh, particularly, you know, this it's sort of a nonfiction counterpart to everything for everyone that has yeah. a lot about family <laughs> abolition. And trying to offer a kind of speculative, uh, maybe ideas about how family abolition could actually unfold in a revolutionary context in a way that's not about the expansion of the authority and scope of the state in our lives, nor about the expansion of impersonal market exchange as a kind of primary dimension of social reproduction. So like sort of seeking out an idea of family abolition that's like neither the state nor the market nor the private family. Um, and the emergence of, uh, communes of a few hundred people that are, that grow out of, uh, practices of collective social reproduction that we currently see at protest camps and things like that. That, that sort of what I sketch towards the end as a positive, possible speculative horizon. So it has a very strong science fiction component to it in its final chapters. And I think you're right to sort of identify science fiction as playing a very important dimension in how I theorize and how I think that I'm always interested in kind of thinking about our present alongside against the possibility of a classless society mm -hmm. and against what might be how we might imagine a free society. And that as a sort of conceptual tool to get beyond the kind of narrowness and constraints of pragmatism of like what is possible to win in the dreadful present in which we're, we are right now. Also to get beyond, you know, the tendency to nihilism and real hopelessness mm. that like the gesturing towards alternative futures, I think plays a very powerful role in my own mind to being able to theorize at all about anything. That there's mm -hmm. a way that I I I find critique much more tractable or possible to explore when I'm thinking about it alongside a kind of radical alternative. Um, and so Star Trek played. I've always been very into science fiction, and since being a child, and Star Trek played a very important role. That I think it being a post scarcity society, right? It's a society mm -hmm. without money, without any form of market exchange. It's a society that's overcome many of the key problems of racial capitalism in our world. It's a society that's overcome the private family. 
Um, and to sort of watch as a teenager season after season of these people caring for each other and having great adventures and being principled and ethical and grappling with growing as people, um, that, that, that I think had a huge impact on me. Um, and it also helped, I think, thinking about Star Trek, something that I commented to you, Madeline, which is I think family abolition, both sort of the family problem, Mm-hmm. Questions of descent, of lineage, of inheritance, and uh, overcoming of the family play a major role in a lot of science fiction, including mainstream non-utopian science fiction. So I recently screened for my teenage child uh, the Alien franchise, mm-hmm. as well oh, wow. as the Blade Runner movies. And mm-hmm. both are really about problems of inheritance and descent very much. Uh, corrupted inheritance in both cases, mm-hmm. and sort of family problems in both mm-hmm. cases. Uh, and very differently, right? Um, and neither uh, have anything really much to do with sort of nuclear families, human-based nuclear families as we understand them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a just an enormous theme in science fiction, and I think Star Trek offers sort of one musing on it. Um, and in Picard season three, I think it ends up drawing out some of the deep ambivalence of Star Trek's relationship to family, some of the conflicted and contradictory mm-hmm. role mm-hmm. of that as unfolds across Star Trek as a whole. Can I ask about, like, just to continue my dumb guy strain a little bit here, Literally, I had not heard the words family abolition until within it's been no more than like nine months that I've heard this concept. So I'm, I've, I've had some of the very beginner questions and I, I think I know some of the answers to them. But for anyone who might be like, some element of this is a comedy podcast where they're talking about TV and movies, I would love <laughs> if you would be able to explain. So, like, my first big question is for someone who has had not even a great family, just an okay family, what is wrong with the private family? And you can also tell me that that's the wrong question as well. Hmm. Well, as I'm starting to do book events for family abolition, I really should develop a very coherent, very clear <laughs> answer to exactly. That's why we're here. We're helping you with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's early in the process of promoting this book. Um, well, I think two really immediate problems sort of leap out at me in my own life uh, and thinking about people that I care about in the present that I think are not quite resolvable in the how we organize our lives right now. One is during COVID, we were all isolated in uh, the private household. And uh, people who didn't have families to fall back on were really quite isolated, right? In a tremendous amount of often despair and loneliness. And even those with families, even those with very good families, right? So uh, there's a, a lot of documentation of a rise of child abuse and partner abuse and other things, uh, and a lot of the coercion and violence that's common in families uh, really spiked during COVID. But even people in the best families, it's just actually impossible to manage all the work of a household. That as people took on 
responsibilities around parenting and educating their children and taking on all these tasks around cooking and procuring food that typically fall on some mix of state institutions and the market economy, that it was just the amount of work involved was crushing. And I think it made very clear for a lot of people that like the small nuclear family household where both parents work is, uh, is an, or where there is one parent and they work, uh, is a, is a really nightmarish and impossible way of organizing the labor of childcare. That it puts just tremendous and crushing pressure on everyone. And so, and then the other problem that I think about a lot is, um, thinking about trans children and all of the kids who are born into transphobic, uh, or hostile families. And what happens to them? How are they cared for? How are they protected? And yeah. right now, the only instrument that exists in society to intervene in shitty parenting decisions is a, an ex- extremely racist, very destructive, very violent state, which mm-hmm. is getting marshaled right now in order to punish parents who support their children's right. gender expression. Um and so that we, you know, that we have no means and no mechanisms of t- caring for trans children uh, outside of if they're lucky enough to be born into a sympathetic family. So these these are two problems that I think, you know, actually trying to think about real solutions to them takes us way beyond the constraints and structures of the private family as we understand it. Um, I, yeah. There's a lot more to say, but no, that's, that's great. That's a kind of starting point for me. Well, one of the things that one of the things I um, I think that you're always very um, kind of cogent about is that it's not about destroying one's individual family per se either, which is kind of the immediate assumption I think that that many have when they hear abolish the family is well, well I you know. I have problems with my family, but I love my right. sibling or something like this. And to kind of personalize it and think about it in, in their own individual experience in that way. And I think um, one of the, one of the points you often make is that it isn't about destroying your individual family per se, but superseding the family form. Right. Um, and um, to be thinking about it, um, in a kind of depersonalized way as well, right? Um, or to at least interrogate that immediate assumption or kind of um, knee-jerk reaction that happens when we encounter this this idea or this phrase. Um, in the beginning of your EndNotes essay, I'm just going to read a little uh, passage from the beginning, which I, I think just is so great at anticipating these, these uh, interpretations. But... You write, the call to abolish the family has haunted proletarian struggles since um, the Communist Manifesto, offering a horizon of gender and sexual liberation that has often been deferred or displaced by other strategic and tactical orientations. The phrase evokes the complete, almost inconceivable transformation of day-to-day life. For some, one's family is a relentless terror from which one must flee to find any semblance of themselves. For others... It is the sole source of support and care against the brutalities of the market and work, racist cops, and deportation officials. For many, it is always both at once. 
No one can make it in this world alone, and one's personal account of their own families has a direct bearing on how to understand the call to abolish the family. Um, and we'll link this in the show notes, but it's it's an incredible essay to to read before looking at your book. And I know that um, you're just kind of extending this project much further and in um, exciting directions with the book as well. But. One one way of uh, arguing for family abolition uh, that came up a lot around discussions for everything for everyone is family abolition is imagining uh, a commitment, a struggle for free society where one's material conditions of survival and well-being and human flourishing are not based on who you sleep with mm-hmm. and who you happen to be related to. Right, who you were born from. And, yeah. No more Nepo babies, huh? <laughs> oh, God. Right? You're obsessed with Nepo babies. I just, uh, well, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> I've been it thinking like they're just a proxy for class. I know, yeah, right? well, for sure, for sure. But Picard actually is a lot about Nepo babies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Good transition. One of the things I was really interested, I mean, I had a kind of anxiety through the, through watching the first few episodes. Uh, I watched the I watched the first season and then had to skip ahead to the third season. But when we encountered Jack, Picard's son. I was very worried that it was going to just completely become absorbed into this family sentimentality, the restoration of order and patriarchy. And, you know, while we encounter Picard in season one is describing himself as waiting to die, that learning of himself as a father was going to give him this kind of sense of closure, etc. I don't think that the series did that. Um, I think it flirts with that and, and probably knows that many of the viewers want that. <laughs> right. But what I liked so much about it is how um, that is always in lockstep with this really utopian vision of, of friendship and that um, if anything, I would say friendship is, you know, that's the note that the end or that the, uh, the series ends on is this beautiful image of them playing around the table as friends. <laughs> that's, um, so I was wondering if you could like, if you could speak to that specifically, how, how did you find the kind of assertion of the family, um, as a Star Trek fan and, and specifically a Next Generation fan. Wow, that just jumps right to the end. Um, oh, sorry, I do. That oh, sometimes. we got it. We don't. Yeah, we're not going episode by episode. <laughs> we here. have a lot to talk about. No, no, no. But, but just, uh, yeah, the arc, arc with Jack specifically. What were your oh, thoughts about that? Oh, there's just so much to talk about around that. Um, yeah, I think Picard season three is really deeply ambivalent about the question of family. Mm-hmm. That like it, it struggles. Where on the one hand, you know, there there are all these themes that play out in the show across multiple characters in their relationship with their children, of uh, kind of people wrestling between loyalty to their ship, to Starfleet, to their crew members, versus their commitment to their children. And so that's a huge theme that unfolds in it for multiple characters and multiple relationships. There's another major theme that unfolds that centers around. um 
the family, the, the crew as a surrogate family, right? So friendship as a direct substitute for family and the friendship of the crew being sustaining, being transformative, being healing. And this, uh, intersects with uh, the multiple themes around nostalgia and the sort of in, uh, memory of the next generation as a show incorporated throughout the, Picard. And then there's another whole complex theme around corrupted inheritance, around biological descent and uh, mental illness and infection. And that this, you know, is uh, the relationship between Picard and his son is an extremely fraught one in quite a few ways. Um, and so that kind of all these things are playing out in the show. And the show, um, like, they're the political dynamics of that are extremely complex where I think both the nostalgia for the next generation and the reassertion of order both have conservative elements to them or the reassertion of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Um, And both have ways that they are kind of wrestling with the limits of the politics of conservative politics. Um, I would say that the show doesn't wholly embrace um, either the idea of returning to biological descent, the nuclear family, one's biological kin as a kind of primary sentimental loyalty, nor does it wholly embrace the the sort of this other modality in Star Trek where the surrogate family of the crew are your primary loyalties and your sort of duty to Starfleet. Um, and that the show kind of vacillates back and forth between these throughout. And that that provides a lot of the kind of narrative drive and narrative tension of the show. Yeah, and I think I was thinking a lot about that with Picard and Riker's relationship of this kind of not quite father son relationship that they have and wait you think there's fathers i only saw them as like older and younger brother right it's definitely it's a mentor relationship you know um established in the first the first series i was just interested in um in some of the ways in which um the family was not quite mapped on to the friendships, um, the surrogate nature of the, of, um, the crew. Um, and Picard and Riker are relating to each other, um, in ways that are kind of ambiguous at times. I don't know. Is that not your read on it, Michelle? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a simple answer to this. I think Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, it's connected to what I just said, the sort of vacillation between sort of thinking about family as biological descent and family as the sort of surrogate commitments between the crew. And, you know, like there's that moment where Jack confronts Picard in the flashback. And says, you know, Picard at this point doesn't know who Jack is. And Jack right. asks about if he has a family, you know, what his life outside of Starfleet. And he says, no, the Starfleet is the only family I've ever needed. Yeah. And that right there is, you know, this real tension of the whole show. And right, in that right. sense, like, uh, Riker is a surrogate son. He is a mentor. Uh, you know, Picard acts as a mentor to him. 
Um, they, you know, have a very close friendship and relationship that develops throughout the next generation. And Picard kind of complicates this. This season three complicates this in some rich ways. Um, but that it's neither like the, his relationship with, uh, with the relationship between Riker and Picard is neither entirely equal to the relationship between Picard and Jack, nor right. is it entirely different. And that mm-hmm. the, the, this sort of ambivalence is so much of what the show pivots around. I really didn't see Riker as because because the ways they're bonding, right? Like Riker's almost like um, when Riker's talking about his dead son mm-hmm. and the moments when Jack's life is threatened, he's like giving advice to Picard, right, or or sharing his experience with Picard. And I didn't. I saw them such as like. Like, I saw a deep, like, loyalty there, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, if Picard, like, what Picard might have seen as his children, so to speak, before he met Jack. I don't know if he would have said, I mean, obviously not, only taking the text that I've read, that, mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know if he would have said Riker or if he would have said, like, his vineyard and the wine he keeps gifting people that they all seem to hate. Well, it's the question of his legacy, right? Um, Which I I thought the theme of legacy was very interesting. And um, when we first encounter Picard, before he knows himself to be a, quote, father, it's really about his uh, legacy, right? Thinking through what is he leaving behind, preparing to die, essentially. Um, But what do you think he thinks his legacy is? Oh, I don't know. He's a fictional character, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Wow. <laughs> um. <laughs> this is why I don't do cultural criticism. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Just rug pulled completely under. <laughs> this was the first time I really felt that we were supposed to think about. Riker and Picard as having this not quite father-son relationship in which the family was kind of creeping up on these other relationships in a way that I didn't feel in the original series. Maybe that's a neat and tidier way of of saying what I was trying to say before, but... um, I think that's right. You know, the family form seems to be looming in these um, otherwise, I think, you know, much more utopian visions of friendship. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. The, even if, even if Picard doesn't think of his, of Riker as a son, they are relating to each other as fathers, right. And fathers and Mm -hmm, their, mm -hmm. their status as fathers is, is, um, becoming the, the kind of ground of their relationship in this way that, um, I don't know. So that was why I was a little anxious. <laughs> it's like, oh gosh, this is going to be taking all the things that I really liked about the original Star Trek and, um, you know, forcing them into this mold of uh, the nuclear family. And um, whereas Picard had been this kind of avunc avuncular figure not the a not quite father mentor um hero <laughs> leader figure right um all the all the problems wrapped up in that 
that I hadn't um, experienced him. I think you were saying that too, as a, um, a direct kind of patriarchal figure in this way. So um, I was wondering what, um, so this is a reboot, right? It's like, it's not just a sequel, but it's a, a reboot. And one of the things that reboots do, um, well, reboots seem to do, often one of two things. One, clean up, revise, put a good face on like what all the problems that were lurking in the previous um, series, um, kind of correcting. So often reboots of these kind of all white shows from the 90s, suddenly that suddenly there's queer (laughs) and non-white characters in this narrative world and these type of things. So there's a kind of political correction that's happening or there's an opportunity to kind of comment on the previous series. And I was wondering how much of either of those things you're seeing happening in, in Picard. This touches on some much broader questions about sort of how Picard is situated with other Star Trek shows and about some of the politics and political struggles happening around new Trek around the sort of current era of Star Trek. So it might Ooh. make sense to kind of back up and talk some about that context. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then kind of uh, perhaps ask your question again, having established some of that. So okay. like broadly, there, there are three major eras of Star Trek. There's the original series, which was quite short. Um, there is ran for three seasons. There's the, um, Rick Berman era, who was the showrunner at the time for a number of these shows. So the next generation, Voyager, DS9, and then later a little bit sort of tangential to them, Enterprise. Um, and then there's the kind of what, what is derisively called New Trek, the kind of current okay. reboots. And the films, uh, to some extent, cross over between eras and uh, extend them. Um, but, but these, you know, these, uh, eras of the television shows really shape how people think about Star Trek and people's loyalty to it. And the original series is, uh, a bit, had some liberal and radical elements for its contacts, you know, having a racially integrated crew, having a Russian and a Japanese character on the ship, sort of depicting a post-nationalist uh, kind of global peaceful society. Um, there are kind of moments in the original series where certain elements of uh, patriarchy or misogyny or challenged, you know, it, it's sort of an overall liberal vision in a context that liberalism was, uh, still a challenge for many. Um, uh, but, but mostly it's a show about, you know, an arrogant white dude who sleeps with a lot of people <laughs> and gets in fist fights and is very brave all the time. Uh, and, you know, kind of obviously reactionary in many straightforward ways. Um, and the next generation, uh, integrated characters of, you know, integrated, uh, uh, characters of color, Geordi being one of the main ones, Worf, and uh, many of the Klingons also played by African American character or actors. It, uh, it definitely sort of tried to get beyond the kind of narrow machismo of the original series. And there were, um, very intense fights behind the scenes for a long time between Rick Berman and many of the actors and writers, particularly around questions of 
homophobia and queerness. Uh, Rick Berman really wanted to keep explicit queerness out of the shows, and writers kept trying to smuggle back in in a number of ways. He um, was uh, widely criticized for being misogynist and putting sort of the younger female actors in tight-fitted clothing and uh, sexualizing them in a variety of ways, and then occasionally either kicking off the show or killing off characters because the actors annoyed him or fought with him too much. <sighs> that happened in DS9. And so, you know, there's a long legacy around these shows both being uh, extremely progressive in uh, for their era in many, many ways, and struggling to go beyond the kind of limits of a heteronormative liberalism that's, that's mm-hmm. built into them. And there were elements of the shows that were of uh, Star Trek early in the seasons that were extremely racist and were criticized mm-hmm. and fought about. There's a lot to say about all that. Um, but you develop uh, a, a really mass of fans of the original series and the kind of 90s era who feel very committed to kind of what Star Trek was. And uh, coming into this current period, there's been an enormous politicization of online fan culture around Star Wars and a lot of other franchises. This large body of people, of white men, kind of radicalized in a right or, or moving far right in fights around Gamergate and other things being recruited and or manipulated in some cases by like neo-Nazis and um, developing very strong, hostile campaigns around attacking what they see as the corruption of their <laughs> favorite franchises and popular culture in the direction of wokeness. Hmm. And this has played out in Star Trek in a very, very ugly way. That okay. um, Alex Kurzman has been the main showrunner in relaunching this sort of moment of Star Trek. And Discovery was its central show initially. And Discovery was so passionately hated by many historic Star Trek fans. It involved a black woman as the central protagonist, um, Captain Berman. It, it involved many, many queer characters, uh, a non-binary character, a trans character, you know, that there's, um, and it, the level of vitriol about the queer characters and the women of color characters around Discovery, uh, got very, very intense online. And people put, uh, uh, um, hundreds and hundreds of people put in concerted energy around trying to destroy the show, uh, according to every means they had available. Um, yeah, and trying to get Alex Grisman fired and trying to get the show bankrupt and all sorts of things. Jeez. And so this sort of like far right, very intense reactionary retaliation is the context of Picard. And it's so there were multiple efforts by Paramount and, uh, and Kurzman and some of the other people around Star Trek around trying to figure out how to split or placate or mitigate some of the hostility from right-wing fans. And one of those was Strange New Worlds, which involved extensive nostalgia and references to the original series set in a very uh, immediately prior to the original series and with a white male captain. Um, and, you know, it's a great show in a lot of ways. 
And then um, Picard is really an effort to enlist those nostalgic for the next generation and who grew up on the next generation and figuring out how to um, keep these people happy in many ways. And they, they, for season three, they brought on a very different showrunner, Terry Metalis. And season three was billed to fans as the sort of conclusion that the next generation always deserved and was cut short, uh, that their, you know, their, the arc was continuing after the show into movies and the final next generation movie, Star Trek Nemesis, didn't make very much money. And there was a plan to have a concluding movie to sort of wrap up these storylines. And that was cut short because of money. Um, and so the season three of Picard is uh, an effort both at sort of returning to a Berman era misogyny of which there are many casual elements scattered throughout season three of Picard and the nostalgia for, of fans of the next generation and to sort of provide the conclusion that we always yearned for. Um, and as a fan of the next generation, this is all super compelling to me and very exciting. <laughs> right, right. Um, and most of the response online has not explicitly drawn out this political dimension in hmm. the right wing fans have not actively attacked um, Picard, nor have they openly celebrated it as like radically different than Discovery. Uh, there has been some of that. Discovery announced that they were going to have a concluding season and a lot of people emphasized how Picard was like so much better than Discovery. Um, this. There has been a big upsurge. Terry Metalis has been involved in this and a number of actors around calling for a new show called Star Trek Legacy, uh, using the characters, some, many of the characters, uh, as some of the newer characters as well from Star Trek Picard season three, but incorporating characters from throughout DS9 and Voyager and the next generation. And really being a nostalgic kind of rerun of the 90s. And, I see. you know, there's, um, uh, and that's been a big online effort. So that's been one of the main responses to Star Trek Picard season three. Like, we need less discovery and we need more of this. Um, I see. I'm curious how that plays genre wise. If that, you know, because Star Trek is such, you know, thinking, get, watching the series, going into this episode, I was like, this feels like one of the most, one of the least porous, you know, shows or movies that we've watched genre-wise. Like, you could very much be like, this is sci-fi, this is even Star Trek as a, a genre, you know, in in this portrayal of these eras and the way the politics plays out under the surface do you find and do either of you i guess find that like um the the genre feels similar from show to show or does it shift depending on how sort of classic white male arrogant guy it gets um yeah well i was struck by there are there's, you know, just the right amount of these Easter eggs for the TNG fans and these kind of um, lighthearted moments. You know, the last episode 
were falling asleep <laughs> or something like this, right? Um, After they've just had this just, crazy battle, yeah. Yeah, that are just meant to, like, um, comfort you, I think, at, the, at that level of nostalgia. But then I was, I was interested in one of the things I felt, especially about the first season and, and thinking about, oh, there's different showrunners. This is all pretty interesting in terms of what makes season three distinct even within the series of, of Picard, but it did seem like this opportunity to in focusing on Picard, who I would say is the most quote prestige television character (laughs) in this narrative world, um, allowing um, the series to kind of go further into those um, um, high tragedy Shakespearean mm. yeah, he um, quotes questions of legacy. Julius Caesar at the end, right? And, and he was always that character, but because yeah. he's more of the narrative center of this, I felt like those elements of the show, of, of the old show, were kind of much more amplified and um, luxuriated in, in some ways. And I, um, But I, I don't know. I didn't watch season two. I kind of suspect that... Um, from what you're saying, season three kind of took a little bit of a, a turn genre wise into, into some other territory also. Yeah. Um, these are good questions to be clear. Terry Metalis was brought on for season two of Picard oh, and season two, stayed okay. on for season three and was oh. a central figure in the marketing of season three. Um, Michael Chabon was the, uh, mm, right. his name was the showrunner for season one of Picard. Um, yeah, genre wise, I, I think I, a big variation is the centrality of action. That the original series, uh, involved a lot of low budget, lo-fi action, lots of fist fights and gunfights and things like that. The next generation involved very, very little action and not much in the way of suspense. And then the budget, uh, for all of the new trucks is massively increased. And their, uh, uh, Discovery had a very rapid editing style that was much more aesthetically reminiscent and lots of explosions, lots of sort of ships crashing into each other, lots of like acrobatics. And that was much more reminiscent of a Star Trek reboot of what's called the Kelvin timeline. So the recent, the movies Star Trek, Star Trek Beyond, Star, uh, that have very different Star Trek Into Darkness, that have a very, very different aesthetic and kind of an alternative world of Star Trek, that they really, um, that beginning with Discovery, they much more read as action movies, as high budget action movies than uh, the next generation did. And Picard combines these elements. It has elements of the sort of action movie style, but a slightly slower pace of editing. Um, it has the kind of high budget of the other new tracks of Discovery, especially and, and Strange New Worlds. And then it also has sort of more kind of cerebral and psychological emphasis that was uh, reminiscent yeah, of the yeah. next generation. Um, you mentioned skipping season two, which uh, is all about Picard wrestling with his own ancestors. When trying to correct a a timeline for the (laughs) interference of his ancestor's distant ancestor who is uh, on a space mission to Europa and then also wrestling with the death of his mother and his his relationship growing up in what had previously been 
uh, cast as an abusive family, but was now sort of recast, shifting blame away from his father and onto his mother's mental illness. Um, and that's a time travel narrative, right. a time too, travel right? Story. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm in in the Star Trek world. There are all these kinds of variations, and Next Generation is very much more of a kind of classic extension of like the colonial sea power travel narrative, where it's it's almost a procedural where it's just like every episode is <laughs> a new planet or a new case or a new species, a new conflict that has to be resolved by, by the end. And it's so that you can watch it kind of more episodically as kind of contained narratives, but the original much more serialized, right? right. The original <laughs> series was episodic and strange mm-hmm. new worlds was made episodic in part in response to all the right wing hostility to discovery Mm. that criticized its lack of episodic character. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I want to go back to this question. I think you like more than answered my question about kind of how to think about this as a reboot and the politics of rebooting. Um, uh, one character I've always been fascinated by, uh, just having grown up watching Star Trek next generation also and feeling, uh, in hindsight, curious about how she impacted me was Deanna Troy, right? <laughs> Just wondering what you think of her arc between the original series and, and this one. And um, because even within the original series, it starts out with she has, she always has a different kind of outfit, right? Which is much more <laughs> uh, tailored and um showing off her parts but it started with her you know not even not even getting pants right she had a a short skirt and and these type of things she's always a little bit outside of out of um you know the cadre in some ways um and she's the like psychic therapist basically you got well it. yeah I, michelle okay. can go more in depth on on her um on her genetics and things like this. But I was wondering what you think of what happens to her and to Beverly. These are like characters who do need some kind of interventions <laughs> in terms of how they're represented. And how do you see that happening? Uh, both Deanna and Troy and Beverly Crusher as characters are really mistreated in the next generation. They both, uh, Deanna Troy was overly sexualized and low cleavage and many terrible things happened to her and she was often cast as relatively powerless and ineffectual. Deanna Troy, um, I mean, Beverly Crusher got comparatively little screen time and supposedly or possibly in reaction to conflicts with Rick Berman got yanked altogether from season two, got eliminated as a character oh, and then reintroduced. Um, and got a very trivial role in the movies. She really, um, she, yeah, it's sort of a, a truism that she basically disappeared completely from Star Trek for an extended period. And uh, both of them, people tribute to Rick Berman's misogyny, whether it's, that's exclusively it or not is hard to say. Um, and there are echoes of this. I mean, the Crusher gets a lot more screen time in this season than she's basically ever gotten before. Yeah. But like that Deanna Troy is, manages to get abducted by the changelings without a scratch on her is very reminiscent of how she would be a kind of passive victim often in the next generation. Um, it was also, uh, you know, there, um, 
there was a very striking moment in the middle of Picard that where she accuses Riker of rushing off out of their family's grief and their struggles around their son Thad's mm-hmm. death of rushing to Picard um, at the drop of a hat. And uh, in a way that, you know, really emphasizes Riker's enthusiasm for abandoning his family, which is very, very clear. <laughs> and this is a, you know, this is a whole tension that plays out across multiple characters between like, are you more Starfleet or are you more apparent? Right. And right. so that's very, that seems, Riker absolutely seems like a character who would abandon his family at every chance. And he responds by accusing her in the, in the diegetic space of the story, it's, it seems to be a truthful accus- accusation of robbing him of his grief through her emotional psychic manipulation of trying to eliminate emotions in him. So her, which is slightly ludicrous to think a therapist would do this, like yes. that she could not <laughs> tolerate his grief. And so repressed all of his emotions. Uh-huh. Um, well, she also kind of low key like violates client patient confidentiality at the end when Data leaves her office and Riker's like, "Are oh, you still crazy?" And she's like, "Ha ha ha!" Gives him a knowing look. I'm like, "This th- <laughs> this therapist is terrible." <laughs> yes, uh, Troy is a classic depiction of a terrible therapist. There's, mm-hmm. there, that is a yes. consistent theme in, in the next generation. There's no that has not gotten better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yes, Deanna Troy is half human and half betazoid. Her mother was a really quite a remarkable character and a misogynist. She's one of my favorite depiction. characters. And played by the sort of ar- the queen of Star Trek. Um, there's a lot to say about the the kind of history of Michelle Barrett, um, mm-hmm. who plays D- at Luxana Troy, and um, yeah, and she had the hots for Picard. Yeah, yeah. Betazoids <laughs> have psychic powers of telepathy and emotional empathy, and apparently, although I'm not sure this has ever been referenced before, the ability to psychically intervene in other people's emotions, as we learn in Picard mm. season three. Yeah, I didn't know that that was within her. I don't powers, think so it's speak, ever been but... referenced before. <laughs> but I mean, that is the kind of Deus ex machina nature of of her telepathy is oh it can do that too right yeah. right, right. <laughs> like it's constantly doing whatever the plot needs it to be doing and um her interventions in this with um well i mean it, it makes sense this i would say this series is much more interested in dreams and memories and visions and hallucinations than than most star trek i've encountered so um, it does kind of give her something to do, <laughs> which <Yeah>. I appreciate. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's interesting. So I want to talk about the Borg in this. Yes, and please. Especially what you were telling us about the kind of uh, political back- backdrop of this. Um, what I mean, so the Borg in the original, by original, I mean the next generation, um, is very much that's probably not going to piss any star trek fans off right just to call the next generation the original that's (laughs) going to be fine right nobody's going to be to me they're all the original so you know 
<laughs> so in TNG, though, the Borg is very much a uh, classic anti-Soviet Cold War propaganda, <laughs> right? Um, and Is it? How so? Uh, like, I kind of get it, but it also seems like the ideal of, like, the Borg, what, what, Jack, when he's in the Borg, he's like, this place has no fear, it's no no loneliness, whatever, and Picard says it's death, but I'm like, this does kind of seem, I mean, I guess now I'm getting it, I'm answering my own question, like, it seems like ultimate communism, but in kind of a good well, that's, way. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the interesting questions about what we can do as critical readers of Star Trek. But the the threat of the Borg was total assimilation, the the loss of liberal individualism, <laughs> the um, total abandon of one's selfhood to um, this collective entity, right? Um, and so... Um, that that's at least the history of of the Borg, and I'm wondering what's different about the Borg. I do think the Borg is very different now <laughs> in terms of how it's framed in this in this um, in this narrative. But what are the what are the politics of the Borg now? How do you, how have you seen that as changing between these two series? Yeah, I mean, so much of the politics of Star Trek and the politics of a lot of TV shows. It's sort of bundling these contradictions in a lot of ways. And the Borg are both sort of uniform, all equal, all assimilated, all united as one kind of a, uh, the sort of evil counterpart to the Federation, right? The Federation has overcome all human conflicts and yet, and the Borg has sort of overcome all interpersonal conflicts, right? And there's a way <laughs> that, you know, the, the one, I mean, this is a bit of a side note, but, um, Jonathan Franks, the actor who plays uh, Riker, is a has been a major director in Star Trek for mm -hmm. a while now and directs right. a lot of episodes. And one of the things he talked about a lot is how Rick Berman wouldn't allow. Uh, well, actually, no, Gene Roddenberry wouldn't allow characters to disagree with each other. He really huh. wanted to depict Star Trek as a future where people got along with each other. Um, and that this was maintained in the Rick Berman era. And it wasn't until DS9 that you had a setup of a show where there was significant conflict between the characters. And many actors, including Jonathan Frakes, thought very straightforwardly, eliminating interpersonal conflict is eliminating good drama. Um, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was a it's lot of true. enthusiasm <laughs> going into Picard season three that f that Riker and Picard would disagree as characters mm. for the first time, which I think goes to some of Dave's thoughts about like, are they father son or are they brothers? Right. You know, that the disagreement plays an important role here. Um, but so the Borg eliminate all disagreement in a way that Gene Roddenberry did with the Federation, but in an evil way, right? They eliminate agency, they eliminate individual choice, they eliminate sort of self-determination for species in incorporating everyone into this sort of universal whole. And yet the Borg also are organized around a central queen figure who consistently yes. <laughs> has a very rich personality that is sort of a seductive, femme fatale, like all-powerful, all-knowing woman 
who, you know, uh, who is willing to do, is utterly ruthless in the commitment to conquest, but also endlessly intrigued with the humans she encounters. That mm-hmm. the, the queen is a sort of, like, uh, Lacan would call her a woman with a capital W, right? A sort of female ideal in sort of at some mm. absolute transcendent evil way. And that she, she's the sort of counterpoint that, that complicates how we think about the Borg and what the Borg are. I mean, it sort of fits within some sort of like insect metaphor or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, uh, but it's a way of sort of adding drama and intrigue and sexuality into the questions of the Borg, which otherwise they would have none of. Um, and so she, uh, when the period when Jean-Luc Picard was turned into a Borg, he mm-hmm. was a kind of counterpart, a kind of partner figure to the Queen. And this mm. ended up being a, a, a major theme in one of the Star Trek films. Um, and so when we see the Borg appear in season three, they have been exterminated. There are none of them left. They're all dead. And the only Borg who survives, apparently, is the Queen, who has been devouring all the other Borg as in order to keep herself alive. Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. don't see a single functioning drone, which in the early seasons of the Borg, all we ever saw were drones, right? Yeah. And so it's like only the Queen as this like fallen, tragic, desperate figure whose only hope is the fact that she has genetically infected Jean-Luc Picard and is a sort of evil mother counterpart to Jack, right? Mm-hmm. So Jack returns mm-hmm. to her voluntarily. Jack feels called to her. She is a kind of evil surrogate mother to Jack. And that that's her only hope. That's her only means of survival. That's her only means of conquering. And that her, and then the strategy, as Dave mentioned, is infecting and taking over all young people throughout the Federation. So she becomes this sort of evil queen over the infected young people that have to be defeated by the old guard. And so the, the, the. And they're all tweeting slay, but she's (laughs) giving mother. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, exactly. I mean, that's what I was thinking of. Wow. So the Borg just turned into the woke mob or something like that. Like, um, and I was really, I mean, the stuff around um, the anxiety around youth culture seemed really note- noteworthy. So the Borg have, have targeted ho- host bodies who can uh, who have um, who don't have fully developed frontal cortexes, right? So yeah. everyone over a certain age is is um, immune in some way, right? And uh, so I was wondering what you were thinking about in terms of like age and potentially ageism, <laughs> generationalism in this, uh, and how it resolves some of the, the bigger conflicts in season three. Yeah, I, I think that the whole dynamic of the children being transformed is enormously reactionary. I think <laughs> yeah. it is mm-hmm. like a full, not only embrace of nostalgia for yeah. the next generation, and, you know, these being the last saviors of humankind, 
but that, you know, it really, it's, it has all these elements, as you said, Madeline, about youth culture that are quite disturbing. You know, this sort of idea of youth being especially susceptible to infection, to having their minds corrupted, being churned against the older generation, and this being in the sort of service of evil and assimilation, right? And I think your, your analogy there of the board going being from the fear of the Soviet Union to being the fear of the woke mob seems exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Do you not think that the Borg could at all be? I I think you're mo- I think you're both mostly right here. But is it possible that the Borg is these shitty Newtrek uh, haters? Are they are they being <laughs> like projected as Borg, or is the mm. hatred the the ageism is a little too strong? The Newtrek haters want um think that Newtrek is just a show for crazy queer people of yeah. color <laughs> yeah. youth. And has abandoned all integrity in the process. And so I think the new Trek haters would pretty solidly be on the side of identifying with the old crew. Okay. With sure. the sort of the lone minds who are willing to stand against them. What about mind. the changelings? I felt bad for the changelings. They like the the whole uh confrontation when Picard's like, Yeah, we freaking genetically infected you to end that one war. But we gave you the the antidote, and th- Vatic is like, is that what they told you? Because you guys did not get, you made an antidote, but you never gave it to us. And we just want, I just really related to a whole beings that were just like, we just want the universe to be quiet again. You guys are so loud and like. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know. I, I, I liked all the villains in this show. <laughs> well, I mean, that's an, in- it's a. It's an interesting thing uh, watching some of some of Star, which is so organized, at least in the, the first few series around, or the first two series around, this liberal, progressive vision of you know a multicultural but highly individualistic future. Um, you know, is that occasionally you are you are kind of on the other side or quietly ambivalently rooting for the Borg or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's a, that's an interesting tension that plays out. I mean, so I wonder that that would be a good, um, my last kind of question is just getting back to family abolition and how much do you see this as a family abolitionist narrative and how much is it not? How much, much is it about something else, um, entirely, um, how much does it take from the family abolition vision that you see in, in TNG and what does it do with it? Yeah. I, I think that Star Trek uh, Picard season three combines elements of family abolition and, uh, and questions of the family problem and infected descent. Uh, sort of the problem of biological kinship as a, a fraught question and elements of nostalgia for the nuclear family and nostalgia for uh, the sort of old guard, the old generation. It combines these elements in really fraught and ambivalent and contradictory ways that I think ultimately I would define it as a family ambivalent story rather than a pro-family or family abolitionist story. Yeah, it does seem, and I think that's 
I think that's right. And I think it's, I think it's politically confused about what it's doing with the family and what it's doing with this legacy of friendship from TNG. Um, I think it awkwardly tries at some points to assert it as more of a family than it was, or to kind of transpose, um, family archetypes onto these characters who just weren't in TNG (laughs) aligning with those. And that was what was kind of wonderful about it. Even if there were all these other very problematic and now historically very dated elements of that show that that kind of utopian kernel was, I think much more vibrant in TNG. Um, And, but I will say I was really happy with the last scene. I did feel like it ended with this, this moment of, yeah, and just it is about friendship. It doesn't lose track of friendship, right? Um, but what it's what it's saying about friendship in relation to the family as a not quite family goes from being something kind of revolutionary to being something um, confused and possibly reactionary. <laughs> it's so, wild uh, that Picard. Oh yeah, go ahead, Michelle. I, 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 poker plays an important role as the the one space that the bridge crew all socializes together, and they're all except Picard. Picard feels himself that it would be socially inappropriate to have to be too close, right? To play um poker with them. So poker reappears repeatedly throughout the next generation as their one like voluntary social space where they all come together. And the very final scene of All Good Things, the final episode of The Next Generation, is Picard agreeing to play poker with them for the very right. first time. Because so he's the- always kind of like going and hanging out with Guinan while they play poker or something yes, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> and <laughs> That's so, his egalitarian space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Guinan as a civilian that he doesn't have command right. over, right? And, exactly, and yeah. as a as a figure who's much older and much wiser than him. Um, and so it's a direct echo of all good things of the end of the next generation. And it's a, the, the scene of poker is very much the sort of scene of the surrogate family, the bridge crew all mm. caring for each other, all being in solidarity with each other, all having fun together, um, being able to find joy in each other's company. And I thought is, is quite rich and beautiful in many ways. Um, Whatever, but Picard wins the poker hand. I'm like, this guy's still winning <laughs> even at the poker game. Well, Picard, I... Picard is a very serious gambler in his youth, and <laughs> okay. he has a he has a new heart in part because he has a fake heart because he cheated at a game of Star Trek billiards with a group of nars. Um, n- what are they called? Narsikins who stabbed him in the heart <laughs> in retaliation when he was a rebellious oh, youth. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. So he's, he knows how to gamble. He's been doing it for a long time. Cause the thing I found, I was like, the, I totally agree about the ambivalent family. Nossicans. I'll have to look it up. Sorry. Okay. okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I understand that it must be very important to get these things right. But like, okay. So some of these ambivalent moments, I mean, they wouldn't be ambivalent if this happened, but I found moments when they're like, they have to decide if they're going to beam people up to save them from the Borg cube, or if they're going to blow up the Borg cube to save the whole rest of everyone else in the galaxy. And they just never have to 
actually confront those are you willing to sacrifice your family for the good of a non-biological family it, they like they i imagine that the like running out of time narrative seems to be a big star trek thing it's like oh you know and and something happening but like but they never seem to actually like you see moments where they might be willing to sacrifice something um but but yeah the only the only sacrifices i i can i remember are when you're sacrificing yourself like mm-hmm. captain shaw who was like who was the original captain of the titan this new titan ship there who sacrifices himself um but he didn't have to choose for anybody else and i i, I don't know i almost wanted them to have to make a choice there there was a key moment where a really beautiful scene where um a number of people, mostly Riker, have implied that Jack Crusher might be Picard's son. And he mm-hmm. doesn't know. And Beverly Crusher has been unconscious and he's he's not sure. And and then this moment where they're on the bridge and Beverly Cr- they're about to uh, hand over, allow Jack Crusher to beam himself over to the strike in order to uh, save them all and enable them to escape. Mm-hmm. And Picard um, is uh, on the bridge. Crusher comes up and just looks at him and they make eye contact and it goes back and forth between their faces. And, uh, <laughs> and then Picard is like, no, do not allow him to go. We have to, we have to save Jack. And they're like, why are we saving Jack? And that puts all of us in danger. And he's like, yeah. because Jack is my son. And then he goes on. To catastrophically end them all up in a in a in an inevitable death situation that kills yeah. them all, and uh, that is about to kill them all, and so he does sacrifice the entire crew for his son, who he had never met before. Right, right, right. Um, and then of course the plot figures out a way to save them all. They all get out of it, and it yeah. turns out. That pursuing and defending Jack is just absolutely essential to saving the universe. And the plot finds a way of reconciling it. Um, but this moment, like, we're meant to interpret this as, like, him having, like, a passionate loyalty based on biological descent in a way yeah. that he's willing to sacrifice everyone and everything for it. But it also, it it echoes one that happens in TNG when he becomes Locutus, that the the crew is grappling with how, how to sacrifice him, and they make all sorts of compromises to protocol and, and um, you know, basically make, make lots of mistakes um, prioritizing their leader over the good of the many, um, which is, but a totally different context where it's about, you know, leadership and heroism and being at war. Right. And then, um, but I found that kind of an interesting nod to the original storyline with, with Locutus, um, who's, that's what Picard is called when he becomes a Borg. He right. gets a name because it's even Latin with, for he who speaks. Right. <laughs> so right. Interesting. So because even with if they're willing, if they're trying, if they're grappling with whether or not to sacrifice Picard, they're almost doing the family versus the many thing, but with their new 
uh, surrogate family. So they're like, are we still going to prioritize our surrogate family over? I, I don't even know how to say humanity at large over what just sentient beings at large or whatever it is or just yeah. the legacy of this one great man right like sure. that's also the <laughs> what's this is a central problem throughout star trek that there's a there's a vulcan uh slogan that uh spock repeats a lot the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and that becomes a central plot device repeatedly and the show consistently sides with the idea that you can um, recklessly commit yourself to saving individuals <laughs> and it works out for the best forever. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Well, because there are really moving moments of like, of of speaking to, I'm a sucker for any time someone's been through it and they still hold on to hope. Like that shit fucks me up big time. And the moment I'm thinking of is when Anton Chekhov is the name of the president of Earth, I guess? and The son uh, of the Chekhov from the original series. Yeah. Okay, but also, oh, okay. isn't that Chekhov, the Ru- Russian writer's original name? An- wasn't yeah. that Anton? Okay. Um, so so he is, the, the president of Earth is like, be like, he's like, don't come here, all the young people, <laughs> the, y- the youth are rising up, abort, abort, you know, don't come here. But he's like, but he also says that thing about like, just never remember, never forget that like, no matter how bad it looks, there's all, as long as we're like alive, there's always hope. And that I just find really moving, but it would be even more moving if some people actually died. Yeah. To be like, if it was more like Rogue One (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Really good Star Wars movie now, actually. (laughs) Yeah. But it was, but yeah, it just, yeah. So, but, but yeah, I I get that I'm wanting a thing that does not exist in the the cinematic universe of of Star Trek. Well, okay. So I think that's a good point to um, move to the genre reveal, don't you think? I do. All yeah. Right. So um I think it's a I think it's great. I think we got it here right at the perfect time. What? I'm so excited. What? <laughs> Let's start with Dave as a newbie. Yeah, yeah. What was your <laughs> sense of the genre of this? So it's not just plainly Star Trek, although I I hear you that it is. It just yeah, yeah, yeah. is Star Trek, but within Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> how would you kind of define its micro-genre? I had this as a body horror family reunion. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so good. Because it feels like every every couple episodes, we have a new aunt or uncle, and they're all like, hey, Worf, oh my god, Data, what? <laughs> you know? And, and there's so much... Cronenbergian. I mean, just mm-hmm. these the changelings. These changelings are so <laughs> funly gross, and 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 Picard even to plug into the Borg, he just randomly plugs something into his neck that we didn't even know he had like a port there before. He, I was just like, what's he happening? Did and yeah, shoved it into his neck. Yeah, he just shoved it into his neck. <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, I I can't capture any everything, but I'm I'm sticking with Bob I like Horror it. Family reunion. That's, That's so good. good. It's really perfect. Okay. How about you, Michelle? I said liberal, family ambivalent, 
post-scarcity utopian science fiction with action elements. I like the okay. with action elements, especially. <laughs> <laughs> with notes notes of action. Notes of action. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just called mine, uh, and you'll appreciate this, Dave, it's one word. It's, wow, it's love it. It's prestige trek. Ooh, which okay. I think I love it. Um, comes with all the problems of prestige, but it's trying to kind of make sense of TNG within those aesthetics and that kind of television moment. I can't believe we didn't talk about Lavar Burden's actual daughter being played. <gasps> That's his she? real daughter. Wait, Not- which one? So there are two daughters. One yeah. is the pilot, who's a major character, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and she's Sydney. And then the other daughter gets very little screen time, and her name, um, her name is Alondra, and Alondra is played by Michael Micah Burden, the daughter of Lavar. Nice. Yo, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, and she's the is sort of like uh, mentee engineer in running the Starfleet. Museum. Okay. Okay. The one fleet. question I had about his character: When did when did Jordy uh, LaForge? That's mm-hmm. Lavar Burton's character. Yeah. Name? Yeah. When did he go from the visor? Because he was blind, right? But he had a visor that allowed him to see. When did he go from that to clearly some sort of? It's one of the movies, right? Version. Yeah. In between it. two of the movies. Yeah. Okay. 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 Gotcha. But the contacts are. Giving him sight, basically. He has right? artificial yeah. eyes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. He's offered artificial eyes very early in the next generation or midway through. Oh yeah. And he's like, no, that. Why would I wear those? Those would be inferior. That would not be good. But <laughs> apparently, the technology on them improves. See, that's interesting because that feels very like declining. The artificial eyes feels like a very disability justice oh it has a strong disability element to it but then to accept them is yeah we lose it yeah yeah well this was awesome uh thank you so much michelle for coming on and and yeah yeah talking to us about happy no one's ever asked me about a tv show before so very happy to wow i had so much more to say that we didn't get to oh my god that's why this is going to be the original series of you being asked about Star Trek. And now you will have generations of new interviews that will become canon in the Emmy O'Brien being asked about Star Trek universe. Incredible. I can't wait. They will be a whole rebooted franchise. Yes. <laughs> and this is the original series right here with you two. Absolutely. So yeah, get Emmy O'Brien's Family Abolition. Uh, collect the links in the show notes for some of those essays and um, to follow me and Madeline and the show uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, listen to my I'm on Twitter too. Yes. Yes. Well, we'll have your, your links for sure. Um, And, uh, and also listen to Emmy on uh, my other podcast. This is your afterlife. One of the uh, most referenced, uh, episodes recently oh had God. someone remind me of the guest and t- and talking about the like just the fascinating Tibetan Buddhist hells was was very um like memorable for people. But listen wow. to that. Um, also, if you have a genre reveal of of Star Trek Picard season three that you want to send to us, email genre reveal party at gmail. 
You can send send any genre reveals of previous things we've covered as well. We will read them on the show. Um, yeah, and 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 put a little review, put a star rating if you, you know, these episodes are long enough. You got time to tune out for thirty seconds and and post a review. So uh, do that too. And thank you. 